from Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. The U.S. military has been racially integrated for less than a century, and the nation has fought some of the most significant wars with segregated troops. As this week's guest will tell us, the often overlooked role of African Americans in the Second World War is important. Black troops fought in combat, supplied other troops with food and ammunition, and built key infrastructure that Allied militaries relied on in winning the war. Matthew Delmont's new book is Half American, the epic story of African Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. Delmont teaches history at Dartmouth College and is the author of four previous books, all relating to civil rights and African American history. He won a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2017 and was awarded a National Endowment for the Humanities Public Scholar Award two years ago. It's Wednesday, November 30th, and this is News Nerds. In 20th century America, Jim Crow laws segregated the way everyday life was lived. But as we reckon with the past, more and more is being written about the severity of racial segregation. In Matthew Delmont's new book, Half American, the epic story of African Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad, he sheds light on the Second World War in a way that isn't often thought about. Throughout most of the war, the U.S. military was segregated, and African American members of the military endured racism. And as he writes, this was something that they had to deal with even when they got back home to America. He's joining us now to talk more about the book. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Ezra. So as I was just telling you, I never thought about that. And maybe that's just, I don't know why. I, I, I just feel like I should have thought more about this um, as you know, our country uh, is focused more on race. Um, but what was the first time that you came across records or, or journals or like newspaper articles that indicated that Black Americans serving in World War II had a substantial role in not only the the outcome of the war, but also uh, what they were fighting for that their um, their uh, double victory campaign. Yeah. So I'd say going all the way back, I was probably fourteen or fifteen years old when my mom bought me a Tuskegee Airmen T-shirt, um, and that was really the first time I'd ever heard of the Tuskegee Airmen. Um, it was something that I, I feel like it was covered very briefly in our high school history textbooks, but there wasn't any great amount of detail on the contributions of, of black troops during World War II. And, but I think that that did plant a seed for me because I was aware of at least the Tuskegee Airmen and aware that that segregation was something that existed during World War II in the military. But it really wasn't during I became a professor and had a chance to, to research this topic and teach about the topic that I got a, a firmer grasp of it. But I'd say it was about seven years ago or so, uh, I was working on my last book project that was about African-American newspapers, papers like the Chicago Defender and Pittsburgh Courier. And I was looking through these historical newspapers, particularly from the World War II era, and I kept coming across pictures and stories about some of the Black Americans who volunteered or were drafted into the military. These weren't famous people. These were just everyday folks from, from Pittsburgh, from Cleveland, from Los Angeles. And seeing these stories, at first I saw maybe a dozen and then eventually dozens and dozens and eventually hundreds, they they presented a um, an aspect of the war I hadn't ever really considered in that amount of detail, The what the war looked like from the perspective of everyday African-Americans. I was familiar with the, the famous folks like the 
Tuskegee Airmen or like Doris Miller, but I wasn't as familiar with the, these kind of everyday stories. And that made me curious. And so that really sparked my interest in trying to dig into this topic um, in more detail. And it led me to um, look at thousands and thousands of newspaper articles, archival documents, um, watch and read oral history interviews with black veterans. And I came away from that with a, a much fuller perspective of the really vital contributions that black Americans made during the war and then the important uh, civil rights contributions that black veterans made after the war. So you've written books um, and, you know, they've all been about history and, and you're, you also teach. So you're a professor. Do you think that in the course of writing these books, um, your teaching has kind of been influenced by what you've been reading and researching in archives? Absolutely. And that's a great question. And for me, I, I try to think of my my teaching and my writing as being things that need to develop in, in parallel and try to find lots of points of intersection between them. I think for my writing, teaching has improved my writing because it has forced me to, to focus on clarity and storytelling. Um, the same things that keep students' attention in the classroom are the same things that would keep a reader's attention. And so you don't want to just um, regurgitate a series of, of facts and, and dates because um, that will put students to sleep. I've, I've seen it happen in, in the classroom. You need to find ways of, of catching those students' attention and, and bringing them into the narrative of history. And that's what I try to do in my, in my writing. In terms of the teaching, I've tried to, to take a real focus on bringing primary sources into the classroom and trying to engage my students, even first year students, in what it means to be a historian. We were chatting before we started the interview. I didn't really fall in love with history as a junior high or high school student because I didn't fully appreciate what makes history so fun. And that's trying to put together all these puzzle pieces. That history is really messy when you actually get into these archival documents or get into historical newspapers or old history interviews. When you see all these pieces of evidence scattered in front of you, it's it's messy. And, and that's actually what makes it interesting is trying to put together these puzzle pieces into a coherent, a coherent story and then try to analyze all these different pieces of evidence. And so for my teaching, um, something I do now that I, I probably didn't do a decade ago is I'll bring in numerous primary sources and, and break students into small groups and ask them to look at a newspaper article or look at an archival document or look at um, a piece of an oral history interview and then ask them to talk in their small group about what they see going on in that um, in that piece of evidence, what kind of questions they would ask about it. And then they share that back out with the larger class. And then we start to try to find connections among these different primary sources. So I think for me, it's as important that students come away with the tools of how you analyze and understand history as it is that they understand uh, some of the key key dates and names and, and facts. I want them to be able to, to understand what it means to, to analyze documents and find documents as a historian um, as much as anything else. In the course of writing this book, um, I mean, there's there's a tons of research that that I think at least went into this, um, from from how extensive it is and how well written it is. How do you research a book? Is it from physical archives? Is it from online archives? Um, is it you know from past knowledge? How do how do you did you research this book in, in particular? So every book is, is probably different. I think every historian would give you a different answer. Um, my work is all on modern American history. And so t 
typically, including for this book, I would be drawing from a, a mix of different sources. Some of those are the traditional archival sources, the, the physical documents that have been archived in Washington, D.C. or at libraries like the Schomburg Library in Harlem. Um, for this project, there were important collections. All the military documents are at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. Um, archives for the civil rights leaders like Ella Baker and Thurgood Marshall are at the Schomburg in, in Harlem. And then there are different local archives that are scattered across the country that you have to go to. And so the process for that is you go, you physically go to the archive or you, you um, work with someone, a research assistant who will go to the archive on your behalf. Um, you sit down, you request whatever number of boxes you're interested in looking at, and then you take pictures of all the documents that are in front of you. That has even changed from when I started as a historian 15 years ago. When I started, we didn't have cameras on our phones in the same way or of the same quality. Uh, and so at that point, you would make photocopies. And so for my first book project, I came home from archives in Philadelphia with thousands and thousands of photocopies. Um, nowadays, historians typically will take thousands and thousands of pictures of whatever documents they're working with, but that's the archival piece. Um, most of the newspapers I'm working with now have been digitized. Uh, that's also different than it was 15 or 20 years ago. For my first book project, everything was a microfilm still, and so I would sit down with a microfilm reader and go through kind of page by page to look at these historical newspapers. Now, these major African-American newspapers like the Chicago Defender, Pittsburgh Courier, New York Amsterdam News, they've all been digitized by a company called ProQuest that sells the subscriptions to research libraries like at Dartmouth. And so myself and the undergraduate uh, research assistants I was working with, we could sit down and look at um, keywords. You could see everything about the army uh, from the Baltimore African-American from 1943 to 1945. And so um, me and this team of RAs would download, honestly, it was like 10,000 articles uh, from these historical newspapers and then just go through them meticulously looking for which ones had um, important piece of information, which ones had interesting stories about black troops who served in the military. A particularly interesting thing there was that uh, most of these newspapers had war correspondents. And so I was able to see how these black war correspondents reported on the war during the war. And so that's a, a source that not a lot of other historians have really drawn on. And then I'd say the third big category of, of work, if, if archival sources are one, historical newspapers are second, the third big category are oral history interviews. Um, for this project, I didn't conduct any of my own oral history interviews for previous projects I have, um, but I was grateful that over the past several decades, um, a number of different organizations have conducted interviews with Black veterans from World War II. So places like the National World War II Museum in New Orleans have done more than 100 interviews with World War II veterans, including a number of Black veterans. So I was able to get the videos and transcripts from those interviews and watch them and read them. Um, and those are really powerful because it's people speaking to their own individual experience. Um, they describe the kind of um, states and cities and towns they grew up in. They describe what it meant for them to go into the Army, Navy, or Marines, and what it meant for them to come home, uh, and often the kind of disrespect they received when they got back to the United States. As I mentioned earlier, I think what's interesting about history is trying to put these different puzzle pieces together. And so it's important for historians to, to triangulate among these different types of evidence, because no single document, no single interview is going to have all the answers. But when you start working with thousands and thousands of different pieces of, of primary primary source evidence, then you can really uh, put together a, a nice uh, nice web and, and a story that emerges from them. So at the beginning of your book, you talk about the, the civil war in Spain, which was actually before World War II was officially declared. Dozens of Black Americans volunteered to fight in the civil war. Um, because they felt that they were fighting not just against the military coup that was uh, was 
uh, forcing the the government out of power, but they they felt that they were fighting against uh, rulers that use policies like Jim Crow policies in the United States. Because what was happening is the 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 military of Spain that was conducting the coup was getting support from Italy and Germany. Many Black Americans had already connected uh, fascism in Europe to Jim Crow policies in the United States. Um, that I thought that that was an interesting connection um, because, first of all, the, the World War hadn't started um, and it just didn't seem to ever come up in anything I'd read. How did uh, Black Americans that volunteered in the Civil War and, and were aware of the policies that were rising in Europe, how did they get their information and how did they ultimately make the journey all the way to Spain to serve in, uh, for a country that most of them had never been to? A great question. And I think as you're noting, um, when Americans think about the history of World War II, we almost always start with the bombing of Pearl Harbor, because that's when America enters the war militarily. But it was important for me to try to understand World War II from the African-American perspective to start the story earlier, um, because for Black Americans, it really did start before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. If you looked at a Black newspaper from the 1930s, from 1933, 34, 35, you'd see dozens of articles and editorials describing the rise of fascism in Europe. Um, black Americans were among the first to recognize what a really serious threat Adolf Hitler and the Nazis posed, in part because Black Americans understood that Hitler was explicitly pointing to American racial policies to help justify his treatment of Jews in Europe. And so um, black writers, black readers, they, they recognize that what's going on first in Germany, then in Italy, and then in Spain, the rise of fascism in those European countries isn't going to be just a problem for Europe, but it's going to be a problem for the entire world um, because it, 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 they can see um, how much it resonates with the kind of treatment black Americans are receiving in the Jim Crow South. So as, as you note, more than 80 black Americans joined what was called the Abraham Lincoln Brigade of volunteers who went and fought in the Spanish Civil War. There are more than 3,000 Americans who volunteered and um, more than 15,000 international volunteers. And the, the famous poet Langston Hughes becomes a war correspondent for the Baltimore African American because he's fascinated that these uh, average black Americans have, have uprooted themselves and gone to fight for a country they've never been to before. Um, he's ends up traveling to Spain and both he and the volunteers have to take a kind of circuitous path because at that point the United States isn't allowing any visas for people to go to Spain because they know it's a, a war front. And so Hughes and these volunteers have to go through France and then make their way um, in, into Spain through, through France. But the kind of people Hughes profiles are people like a woman named Solaria Key, uh, who is a 23-year-old originally from Akron, Ohio, who was a nurse in Harlem. Um, she decided to volunteer to go to Spain for a few reasons. The first was that she was a Catholic and she didn't really consider herself political, but she saw the kind of um, atrocities that were happening to people in Spain and thought just on a religious basis that she had to do something to help. I mentioned she was a nurse. She tries to volunteer for the American Red Cross, but they turn her away because of the color of her skin. Um, but she's working with a number of Jewish doctors who describe what's going on in, in Hitler's Germany, the kind of treatment that Jews are receiving, and the fact that Hitler is providing airplanes and, uh, and money to help support the fascist um, takeover in Spain. So that upsets her as well. And then the third thing is that, like a lot of other Black Americans, she read news in 1935 about the invasion of Ethiopia by Italy, um, which was a huge deal for Black Americans because Ethiopia was the only independent uh, African nation at that point. And so when Italy under Mussolini invades Ethiopia in 1935, 
there are already headlines in black newspapers saying the second world war has started. So even though it's several years before Pearl Harbor has happened, this is what, again, why it's important to follow the sources. Even though it's several years before Pearl Harbor started, you already have black newspapers saying the second world war has broken out in Europe. And so all those factors influence Solaria Key and others to go fight in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, and they were, were literally fighting. Uh, Solaria Key is a nurse on the front lines. There are other um, black men who were in combat, frontline combat in the Spanish Civil War. And one of the things that was interesting about that was that at that same point in the American military, black men weren't allowed to take on combat roles and they weren't allowed to serve in integrated units. They were in segregated units. And so in Spain, you have these black volunteers fighting in combat and serving right alongside white troops, both from the US, but also from Ireland and from, from Great Britain. And so the kind of stories that Hughes writes presents a, um, a very different picture of how Black Americans can contribute to the fight against fascism than what they're able to do at that point in the American military. Um, and so it was important for me to start the book there to help remind um, readers today that for Black Americans, at least, um, they were they were keenly aware that the fight against fascism needed to start before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And they were among the first to take up arms to, to help defeat fascism in Europe. So fast forward to um, after Pearl Harbor, when a segregated U.S. military um, takes up arms, and eventually, um, in in the in the war, troops are sent across the the sea, um, and and these troops were exposed to how European armies structured themselves and how allies structured themselves. Um, so, how were European armies structured differently than segregated U.S. Uh, the troops? So, one of the things that surprises a lot of the Allied armies is the segregation of, of the U.S. Army. The Allied story is, is complicated because France, Great Britain, they all have colonies at that point. And, and by and large, their colonial forces are segregated. But within their own national forces of, of French soldiers and, and um, British soldiers, they don't have the same kind of racial segregation that the United States has. And so they're, they're quite frequently shocked when the United States, one of the the world's great democracies sends a segregated army to help fight this war for freedom and democracy abroad. The story that black troops consistently told was that they were treated much, much better by French and British civilians than they were by white people back in the United States. Um, to the extent that it, it really kind of changed their, um, changed their attitudes about what was possible in terms of race relations. Um, Meg Evers, the famous civil rights activist who was tragically assassinated in 1963, He's with a, a group that lands at Normandy just days after the, the D-Day invasion. And as his group is pushing through France, he spends some time with a French family. And he said it was the first time he felt like he was ever treated as a full human being by a white person, was spending time with his French family. And it dramatically changed his percep perception of what was possible in terms of race relations. So when he gets back to Mississippi, he really dedicates himself to fighting for, for civil rights and equality. So were there tensions between the Allies because of segregation? There were. Um, it was different in different theaters. So early in the book, one of the things I described is uh, Australia was one of the allies. And during the war, they had a, a white Australia policy where their immigration policy wouldn't allow anyone who wasn't white to come to the country. And so initially, they don't want any of the black American troops sent there. And there's this kind of behind the scenes negotiation and and um, pushback between uh, American military planners and uh, Australian military officials, because initially Australia doesn't want any of the black American troops sent there. Eventually, 
Australia recognizes that they they need the troops, and America um, sends a group of, of black soldiers there to help build runways uh, to make it possible to have uh, increased military uh, air power uh, in the Pacific Theater um, as the uh, Japanese Navy is making incursions off the coast of Australia. Later on in Great Britain, there were frustrations over segregation because both for the military and for British civilians, they didn't uh, they didn't expect that kind of American-style segregation to take place in Britain. But for a lot of the white American troops, they insisted that American-style segregation um, take place in these British pubs and restaurants. Things got so bad that there were actually riots between black and white American troops in England during the war because uh, black troops were enjoying the increased freedoms that England offered, whereas white troops wanted to uh, implement those same kind of Jim Crow policies uh, in, in England against the black troops. In the book, you write a lot about the newspapers that were circulating the opinion that the military should be integrated. Um, as you were mentioning, Langston Hughes was a war correspondent for uh, one of those newspapers. So did these opinions that were being widely circulated um, and, you know, really written um, in in a different way, like Langston Hughes portrayed um, some of his work, you know, he was a poet, so he wrote poetry, but also wrote, you know, inspiring and emboldening uh, articles for his newspaper. Did opinions like Langston Hughes ever reach pe- the people in power? And did they ever think to themselves that the, the military should be integrated? I would say slowly but surely, yes. Um, so they, they certainly reached the people in power because civil rights activists, Black um, editors, Black reporters, they were persistent on raising these concerns to military officials under President Roosevelt. And so these were absolutely things that uh, came across the desk of uh, military leaders and people in, in political power. By and large, during the war, they don't make many changes with regard to segregation. With a couple of small exceptions, the military remained segregated during World War II. But they do lay the groundwork for the eventual desegregation of the military um, by President Truman's executive order in 1948. Um, I don't think that would have happened without the previous decade of, of protest and, and activism by thousands of, of Black activists, but also by um, Black soldiers and veterans themselves who recognized that segregation really made no sense for a military that was trying to fight and win a global war on, on this scale. And so the kind of writing that Lakes and Hughes did, the editorials, the, the poems, the other um, protests that emerged during the war, no single thing um, persuades President Roosevelt or anyone else to, to end segregation, but I'd say each one was a building block that eventually uh, overturned segregation in the military by 1948. So we've been talking about yeah, more of the, the combat side and also more of the, the policy side in the war, but you mentioned like a really important part of how African-Americans played an important role in, the, in World War. Many never saw combat, so they were in different roles, um, like, you know, supply and more strategic roles. What was their role in winning the war? Yeah, this is actually an aspect of the story I didn't know was going to be such a large part of the book when I started doing the research. Um, More than a million Black Americans serve in the military, but by and large, they're not in frontline combat roles. They're in these supply and logistical roles where they're driving trucks that are moving supplies or loading or unloading ships, um, clearing jungles, building runways, building these massive roads in Alaska and then uh, in Burma. It was these behind the scenes roles, though, that were really vital to the larger war effort. 
So one of the arguments I make in the book uh, is that World War II wasn't just a battle of strategy and will, it was a battle of supply. And that when you take that broader perspective, it becomes really clear that Black Americans played a vital role in helping to win the war. I think the best example of this is D-Day. So D-Day just stands for Day of the Invasion. So obviously, June 6, 1944 is when the D-Day invasion happened on the beaches of Normandy. But there's still D-Day plus one, D-Day plus two, and it was really the weeks and weeks after D-Day that was the, the second and larger phase of the battle. During that period, the work the black troops did was absolutely essential because they were the ones who were loading the ships across the other side of the English Channel, still in London. Um, they were unloading the ships when they reached the port. They were then driving the trucks in this truck convoy called the Red Ball Express that moved supplies all throughout Europe. The Red Ball Express moved, moved more than 400,000 tons of ammunition, food, um, gasoline, and other supplies that made it possible for General Patton and the other troops to, to push through France and eventually into Nazi-occupied Germany. What was important about those truck drivers is that it made the American military much more mobile and fluid than the German military was. So we often talk about the German blitzkrieg and the lightning warfare, but the fact is that by that point in the war, Germany had more 10 times as many horses as they had trucks. And so they couldn't move things in the same way that the American military could. A lot of that stuff doesn't show up in Hollywood films. It's not the same kind of story of the war as the frontline platoons who are storming the beaches, but that story of supply is what military planners understood is how you, you fight and win a global war. And so if we understand World War II as being a battle of supply, it's really clear that black troops were, were vital to this war effort. Because without black troops moving all of these, these supplies, allied forces couldn't move, shoot, or eat. Um, almost everything that moved in the European theater passed to the hands of one black American. And that's something I didn't know seven years ago when I started the book, um, the extent of that, of that work. And so it was really important for me to try to put that logistical work, put that supply work really front and center in the story of the book. I think without understanding that, you can't understand um, how important black troops were to helping win the war. When um, black veterans return home, you describe you know them being treated in such a such a bad way that they they uh, hid their their um, you know military apparel, and you know on the way back the trains uh, had to be shuttered because of, of fears that rocks would be thrown at the windows. Can you just explain more about the extent to which uh, Black troops were disrespected? This is one of the hardest parts of the book to research and write. The really tremendous amounts of disrespect that Black troops, Black veterans received when they came back to the United States. One of the common stories Black veterans had was that when they got back to the United States, they immediately returned to segregation. So they would get off of a a ship and be pointed um, in two directions, white troops this way, black troops the other way. Um, They didn't have victory parades. They weren't celebrated in the same way that that white veterans were. And there was also explicit violence against black troops. That Things were so bad, as you noted, that sometimes black troops had to change out of their military uniforms as soon as they arrived home. Uh, There were stories of black parents bringing overalls or a change of clothes to meet their sons when they when they arrived back home so they could change out of their military uniform. Just because the the sight of uh, a black veteran in their uniform was so upsetting to a lot of white citizens because they understood that those black veterans weren't going to accept that second-class status any longer. Um, and so in the book, I detail a dozen different examples of black veterans who were murdered or attacked in the years immediately following World War II. And those are tough stories to tell because they're not how we usually think about that post-war period. We'd like to think of it as a time when America 
had come together and become unified and um, was in a position to, to celebrate the victory in World War II and, and moved into a period of great prosperity. But the reality for, for Black veterans is that that's not the country they returned to. They returned to a country that was openly hostile to them and, and, their, and their communities. But importantly, Black veterans fought back. They became the, the backbone of the civil rights movement. As one veteran put it, they went from fighting in the European theater operations to fighting in the Southern theater operations. And so dozens and dozens of these Black veterans became leaders in the civil rights movement and uh, over, over the long term truly helped to change the country. I think that's what's so inspiring about this history is that those Black veterans not only fought for America militarily, but they fought for America to be an actual democracy. That they, they came back and for them, the war didn't end in 1945. For them, it continued because they, they wanted to make sure that the United States was actually a place for freedom and democracy here at home. Did any African-Americans that were fighting in Europe or uh, abroad decide to stay? Was that, was that an option for them? Great question. A, a number did. A, a lot of um, black troops um, re-enlist in the military. They, they re-up on their, their service, in part because the, the treatment they're receiving in France and in, in England and even in occupied Germany is so much better than how they were treated back in the United States, that they, they see a better future for themselves in the military in Europe than coming back to the United States. So a disproportionate number of black troops do re-enlist. So describe the point at which the military becomes integrated. Is it like an immediate thing or is it a long process that took uh, years to, to uh, you know, work itself into the military? So the official desegregation of the military happens in 1948 with an executive order from President Truman. Um, and what leads him to that, as I mentioned earlier, is more than a decade of, of protests by civil rights activists. But even more particularly, uh, Truman is he was a World War I veteran, and he's outraged by some of the violence that's happening against Black veterans, uh, particularly the case of Isaac Woodard, um, who was coming home to South Carolina and was beaten by a sheriff there so badly that his, his eyes were gouged out by the sheriff's nightstick. Truman is, is outraged by that. It's one of the things that influences his decision to, to desegregate the military. That executive order doesn't mean that the military is immediately desegregated. So that happens in 1948. It's not really until the end of the Korean War, by 1953, that the military is fully fully integrated. You see different units, different branches move at different paces. And so during the Korean War in the 19, early 1950s, it's kind of piecemeal integration. Some units are integrated, some are not. Some, some of the branches drag their feet longer than others. But by the mid-1950s, there is um, pretty complete integration of, of the military. Do you have any sense of how African-Americans in the military are being treated today? I think there's no single story. Um, I mean, I, I focus more on the historical aspect, but I do know some amount of what's going on in the present. Say when you have tens of thousands of, of black servicemen and women across all branches um, in different ranks, there's no single story. I think that the two things I would say are, is that since 1948, really, the military has been more in a leadership position with regards to racial equity than a lot of other institutions in the, in the country, a lot of other organizations. And the military has prided themselves on that. And so there are generations now of black military personnel who've chosen careers in the military because they see better futures for themselves there than in the civilian world. They think they're going to be treated more equitably, and they have been treated more equitably in the military than in, um, in the corporate world or in academia, for example. Um, and so I think that's certainly something that is reflected in a lot of survey data and uh, the recollections of, of recent veterans uh, from the military. I think the other reality, though, is that Racism still exists in the military. Um, I think if you follow the news, you know that the military has only recently um, 
disallowed Confederate flags from being uh, displayed as official military insignia and, and on bases. They're only recently reckoning with the fact that a lot of these military bases are named after Confederate generals, um, which is one of the kind of more f- flabbergasting pieces of our nation's history that you would name bases after people who fought against the, the U.S. military. Yeah. Um, and there's a, a pretty serious white nationalism problem in the American military that it has become, it's both a locus for real efforts towards racial equality, but it's also a locus for a lot of people who have uh, very retrograde ideas about race and racial hierarchy that uh, uh, announces itself with, with white nationalism. And so I think the, the experience of, of black troops and other troops of color today is that there are many, many positive aspects of the military, but there are also parts where they still encounter the kind of everyday racism that really has no place in, in an organization like the U.S. Armed Forces. Well, Matthew Delmont, thank you so much for talking about your book. Um, and if listeners haven't uh, gotten a copy, I would really recommend that they go out uh, and buy a copy. It's called Half American, the Epic Story of African Americans Fighting World War II at Home and Abroad. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was a great conversation. is produced and hosted by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com where you can catch up with episodes that you missed, subscribe to our newsletter, play our daily mini crosswords, and contact us. Find News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org slash support dash kgvm. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.